again, it's from Luke, the first four verses of chapter 1. Introduction. Many have undertaken to draw an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the, for, know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Good morning, my name's Stephen, one of the ministers here. Uh, if you've been around with us for a little while, you'll remember that back in Term 3, we asked our friends if they could ask God one question, what would it be? And one of the top questions that people had for God was to do with evidence and, and proof and God's existence. So we sort of summarised that with the question, hey God, are you really there? That was one of the top four we did a similar thing when I was back in Armadale in New South Wales working at a university. We asked a whole stack of uni students, what, if, if we, we put it as a different kind of question, what do you think the problem with Christianity is? And back then as well, one of the top responses was, there's no evidence, there's no proof. That's how many people feel. In fact, it's very common for people to feel that evidence and belief are kind of in conflict with each other and they think that if you're going to believe you've got to do it despite the evidence and so some people assume that the bible it's kind of like a book of stories that have been passed down over time and exaggerated along the way and that what you're really getting with the bible is is some people's kind of spiritual instincts or impressions of god or their personal experiences of God, or kind of moral teachings, or life hacks, that kind of thing, or ways of sort of encountering the divine. They think that when, you, when you're opening up the Bible, you're kind of getting things that are neither right nor wrong, they're just things that are unprovable. They're, they're just things without evidence, and things that are helpful for some, perhaps, but not for others. But if that's our approach to the Bible, the gospel according to Luke, which we just had read to us, it's like a spinner in the works. Because Luke just won't fit that mould. These first four verses of Luke, that they bring the gears to that kind of thinking to a grinding halt. Because it just doesn't at all describe what it is that he's doing. Luke's interests, they're not his, his own spiritual feelings and impressions and insights, what Luke is interested in is the facts. What he cares about is what actually happened in history and what that means. Which means if we're going to read Luke's work the way that he would have us read it, then we need to be asking, is Luke right or is Luke wrong about what actually happened? Luke is either misled himself 
or he's trying to mislead us, or he's actually right. And what he writes about actually happened in history. You know, part of the reason that Jesus is such a confronting figure is because he's not first and foremost an idea or a way of life or or a spiritual approach. Jesus is first and foremost a real person in history. And what matters is what he does in history. Now, that's not simply my personal view. That's Luke's view. That's actually the view of all the writers of the Bible. Faith that's not based on the facts of what actually happened is meaningless in the Bible. So, for example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, he says, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then he says to this church that he's writing to, then there's no point them being followers of Jesus. In fact, he says they are to be pitied more than any other group of people in the world. We are to be pitied more than anyone else if it didn't really happen. Do you see what this means? What happened in history matters. And if it didn't happen in history, none of it actually matters. Luke knew this. The first Christians knew this. They all knew that unless we're talking about what really happened in history, then they're all wasting their time and their lives for no good reason. And it's no different today. Either these things happened or we're wasting our time and our lives. For us, just like for them, faith only matters as it's based on the facts. But what we see today is that Luke claims he's based what he's written on the facts. And so today we're going to have a closer look at just these few verses as Luke introduces his gospel account. And we're going to look at how he tells us that he's approaching writing it. And we're going to do that just by looking at each verse, verse by verse, as it comes along. So have a look at the first verse that Luke writes with me in verse 1. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. This is fascinating. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Luke is saying that before him, many others have written down the details of what had happened. He doesn't tell us who wrote them down. He doesn't tell us exactly what they said. He doesn't tell us what these documents were called. But he assumes his first readers of of his work would know exactly what he's talking about. So what are these documents? What documents is he talking about? We know that they're about the things that had been fulfilled among them. So in other words, they're not just spiritual ideas or spiritual reflections or moral teachings. They're a record of the historical events that actually happened among them. That's what he's saying. And notice Luke says many different people have drawn up one account. It's not plural, it's singular. What he's saying is that these different documents and these different records, they're not conflicting different accounts. These works don't disagree with each other and and present different versions of Jesus and different versions of what happened in history. They're written by many different people with different words, different perspectives even, but they present the same account. 
The same Jesus, the same historical picture. So you might be wondering, can we have any idea about what historical documents Luke is actually talking about? And we can actually. When you read Luke carefully and analyse it, you very quickly see that Luke is doing exactly what he claims to be doing. You can trace some of his sources in his work. You can see evidence of other documents. And the clearest and the easiest one for us to find in Luke is, of course, the Gospel according to Mark. Remember from last year, if you were here, when we looked at the Gospel according to Mark, this is Peter's uh, preaching written down by Mark. It's, it's Peter's account, eyewitness account of the life of Jesus recorded by Mark. We still have the the Gospel according to Mark and so it's actually really easy to see it at times in the Gospel of Luke if you go looking. Now beyond that, it's not as easy to see the other sources that Luke's talking about and that's because we just don't have them anymore. You know, once we had Matthew, Mark and Luke and John so thoroughly recorded, so carefully put down and so accurately, they superseded these other written documents so that now they're only preserved for us as they're contained within Luke and not separate to Luke. But even though we don't have them anymore, it seems pretty clear that within Luke there's something that he's drawing on that often gets called the Hebrew Gospel. Now, remember, Luke's written in Greek. That was like the common language of the day, like English is for much of the world today. But The first followers of Jesus didn't speak Greek as their heart language. They spoke Hebrew or Aramaic or both. And it's clear when you look very closely at Luke that he's drawing on source documents written in Hebrew. Now, I even saw this for myself by accident when I was at Bible college. I I consider it the height of my, um, my learning and I, uh, it's pretty pathetic, as you'll see, but I accidentally stumbled across it. I was a terrible crammer when I was at Bible college. Uh, so studying Hebrew basically meant three weeks of ridiculous cramming with things all over my walls. I would close my eyes and literally see Hebrew letters. That's how much I was cramming. So one time in third year, I went from cramming Hebrew and, and the exams and all of that to cramming Greek. Yep. <laughs> You're losing all confidence in me now. (laughs) And so as I turned to Greek, I had to translate for the exams Luke. And so I turned to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And I thought I'd overdone it. I thought I'd blown another fuse in my brain, which happened from time to time, from all this cramming. Because as I'm translating the Greek, I kept thinking, this feels like Hebrew. This feels like Hebrew. What's gone wrong? I've just crammed all this Hebrew. And I'm translating Greek, but this feels like Hebrew. The way that the Greek was written down didn't feel like Greek. It felt like the way that Hebrew is written, almost like a a very literal translation of the Hebrew into the Greek. Anyway, I filed it away in my head until after exams and then came back to investigate a bit more. And sure enough, when I looked it up, scholars have written about this. But do you see what this means? In the very first paragraph, paragraph after Luke's introduction he's doing exactly what he says he's doing he's bringing to you the reader not his ideas 
Not his thoughts and reflections. History is what he's bringing you. He's bringing someone else's account from a Hebrew source and he's presenting it to you as evidence of what actually happened. That's breathtaking. Now, just because Luke gathers written documents and brings them together doesn't mean he's got history right, of course. But make no mistake, Luke is intending to present to you history. And this brings us to the next verse, because it's actually right to ask ourselves, well, how does Luke go about it? What's his method? What's his approach? And we get a bit more of an idea of his method and his approach in verse 2. So verse 1 says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Verse 2 says, Just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. The documents that Luke is interested in and that he's drawn upon are those which are from eyewitnesses. Luke's approach is only to draw on and value an account if it's from those who actually saw what happened, right from the first. Now, this is phenomenal. What we actually hold in our Bibles is remarkable. It's thrilling. It's like we're being ushered back 2,000 years in history to actually hear firsthand the stories of those who saw what happened. This is their legitimate story. Luke in no way is saying to us, just accept this writing because it's been whispered to me from heaven. Just accept this because it's my spiritual encounter with God. He's not interested in that. He's saying, accept this only because it's actually come from the hands of those who saw it firsthand. Luke's work was probably completed in the 60s AD or maybe the 70s. And so if you think about that, his audience that he's writing this work for, it actually included people who knew the eyewitnesses and even eyewitnesses themselves. Which means the first readers could have gone and clarified and checked and cross-examined what Luke had written to see if it was actually true and done their own investigation. That's phenomenal. Do you know that the gap between Buddha and then writings about his life, kind of biographies, is something like 375 years? And the gap between Muhammad and writings about his life, biographies about his life, is about 125 years. And even the gap between the Roman Emperor Tiberius and and biographies, accounts of his life, is something like 77 years. But the gap between Jesus and then the first writings of his life, well, we have 1 Corinthians, a letter which was just 20 years after his death and resurrection. And the gap between Jesus and, and Luke, Luke's biography of his life, is about 40 years. And it's made up of documents that are from much earlier, made up of eyewitness accounts of what actually happened. There's actually better evidence for the life of Jesus than the life of any other figure in the ancient world. In the New Testament, you don't have, first of all, philosophy. You don't have one person's religious encounter. 
you have many different voices, all giving eyewitness testimony to the same account of what happened. That Jesus lived and died and rose again. All the different independent voices in the New Testament all say the same thing. Now, some people at this point think that we should rule the Bible out as evidence because it's written by people who believe that Jesus rose from the dead and so surely they're biased. And they are biased and in case you miss it, they tell you right up in their introductions most of the time, they tell you that they're writing because they want to convince you that this actually happened. But just because they're biased, it doesn't mean they're wrong. They saw Jesus raised from the dead. And they stood by this claim even when many of them were persecuted and arrested and even tortured and killed. They died not for a religion, but for their claim to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. So you don't die for a lie if you know it's a lie. People will die for religion all the time. We've seen that recently even. They'll die for religion because they believe it's true. You know, terrorists believe something so strongly that they're willing to die for it. But what they won't do is die for something they don't believe is true. Do you see the difference between dying for what you believe and dying for what you claim to have seen? The eyewitness of Jesus died because they believed they'd seen these events with their own eyes. If they knew that they didn't actually happen, then they wouldn't have died for something they knew was a lie. But all of them, one after another, claiming the same account of what happened, died, and not one of them changed their tune. Now you could try and argue that they were all deluded. The evidence will run against you. But it's really not valid to conclude that they were trying to deceive the world. One of them would have caved if they were lying. The real question is, why would simple, skittish fishermen become convinced, confident leaders dying horrifically one after another over decades? Why do that? The the best answer is, in the end, because they knew what they saw. They knew what they saw. And they knew what it meant. And of course, it wasn't just the 12 apostles who claimed to have seen Jesus risen again. It was hundreds of people who claimed to have seen him, claimed to have seen these events in history. And their lives were so turned around that they sparked a massive movement that quickly changed the world. And don't miss this, right from day one, it was a movement that claimed that these things really did happen in history It was a movement that claimed if they didn't happen in history, then there was no point believing it. So Luke's method is the only method that counts in Christianity. And that is that he's only interested in eyewitnesses. But Luke himself, right, is not an eyewitness. He's not an eyewitness of Jesus' life, death or resurrection. He was a companion only of eyewitnesses. And he unashamedly admits this. And so he explains next in even more detail how he's approached bringing the eyewitness documents and interviews together. 
Look at verse 3. He writes, With this in mind, so with all the other reliable documents from eyewitnesses in mind, Luke says, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke's method was, was to carefully investigate everything from the beginning. He gathered source documents. He no doubt interviewed the eyewitnesses. His intention was to establish exactly what happened in history and he sees his contribution as investigating the truth of the events and then arranging them in an orderly way so that others can have access to that full picture of what happened. And particularly he has in mind Theophilus, not just Theophilus, but particularly Theophilus. Now in this verse, that's who he addresses his work to, to Theophilus. And unfortunately, we we don't know who this is. There's several people from the history of that time that we know are called Theophilus. Some were Jewish, some weren't. Uh, It was probably a prominent person. It's possible that it's even a code name for someone to protect the identity of that person. Like it could have been someone in Rome, even in Caesar's own household, who would have been persecuted had it been known that they were a Christian. It could be that Theophilus knew the kind of person that that Luke was, a doctor who's very thorough, who knew Paul and travelled with Paul extensively over a large period of time, who knew the other apostles and the eyewitnesses for quite a while. Perhaps Luke was approached by Theophilus as the prime candidate to to assemble a, a historical narrative for the sake of the next generation as the apostles started to die off. We don't know. But whatever the case, we know what Luke thinks his work will achieve. He says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke sees what he's doing as bringing certainty. What matters is what happened in history, an eyewitness testimony is critical but you don't have to be an eyewitness to have certainty Luke wasn't an eyewitness Theophilus wasn't an eyewitness and yet Luke thinks that certainty is possible Luke says by getting access to the eyewitnesses the eyewitness accounts of what happened that you can get certainty now that's what we have That's what Luke's book is doing. Luke puts in our hands the eyewitness accounts. And it's a phenomenal thing. Do you know, archaeology, time and time again, has confirmed the reliability of of Luke's two books. Luke, in this book, and then in his sequel in, in the book of Acts, he gives hundreds of names of prominent people and place names, and titles of people, some of which over the years have led people to accuse people of, uh, accuse Luke of simply inventing these place names or titles, only for there to be an inscription that's been drug, uh, dug up that confirms yet again that Luke's use of a title is correct, some obscure title that he uses, and sure enough, something gets dug up 
that confirms it over and over again. We can actually have more confidence in the historicity of Luke now than they could have a thousand years ago. Luke really is only interested in what happened in history. Look at places like 1 verse 5 and look at his historical interests. He writes, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Or 2 verse 1, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. These are history, historical facts. Luke 3 verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Trasenius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ennis and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This is the work of someone committed to history. This is the work of someone who cares about what actually happened in history. And he's not willing to embellish things or fudge things. He's not interested in mythology or wishful thinking. He's interested in what actually happened and only what actually happened. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the Christmas story in the Gospel according to Luke. And parts of it are strange, right? Parts of it are are out there, so much so that they're almost unbelievable. But that's the point. This is not everyday stuff that we're reading about. But still, there's good reason to believe it. What we are seeing in the Gospels, not everyday stuff, it's God intervening in history, witnessed by people. This is God catching the attention of the world with a message and a rescue plan that we shouldn't miss. And do you see what all this means that we've covered today, what it means for us? Are you uncertain about God? Or are you uncertain about his character, maybe? Or his plans for his world? Where do you think you'll find certainty? You won't find it in here, in our heads, or in here, in our own hearts. You'll find it in history. God's character is on display in his actions and his words within history. In Jesus entering history to reveal God and to bring this world back to God. If you're not sure about God, you should wrestle with the Jesus of history. And you meet him in the eyewitness reports in places like Luke. But you know, even Christians, sometimes we become unhinged from history. It's almost like we think that our interpretation of God is more important than God's own presentation of himself. It's almost like we think we can present God as more logical, more loving, more impressive, more persuasive than he can present himself. Or we can think that certainty will come about if, if we can logically reconcile all of our questions about God within our own heads, if we can get our heads around every doctrine... Or we think certainty will come if we can experience God in our own lives, if we can sense God in our feelings, 
in our thoughts or our dreams. Or we can think that certainty will come if we can reconcile God with our expectations of him or society's expectations of him or come up with a scientific proof for why there must be a God. But God has chosen to reveal who he is in the pages of history. God has acted concretely, tangibly, physically in history and we must see him for who he says he is there. Our faith is absolutely grounded in history. See, God, he's not real and relevant to me only if he fits my expectations. God is real and relevant because he's actually turned up in history and turned history on its head. And the evidence is there to be discovered. Our choice is either to listen to it or to ignore it. Now, when you think about it, this is both confronting and thrilling. What God has done in history is certain. We really can see his work. We really can see his character and his plan. We can know it with confidence. God gives us certainty by giving us historical evidence. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see these things revealed. God's work, God's plan, God's character. We'll see these things revealed in the events as they actually happened in history. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we hold in our hands in your word. That we are ushered back into the presence of those who were actually there, who saw. Lord, we thank you that we can have confidence, certainty because of what you have done in history. Making yourself known in your actions and in your words in Christ Jesus. Lord, some of what we read is is hard for us to imagine and to see and yet we thank you that we have the accounts of people who died while sticking to their claims. Lord, we thank you that you have turned history upside down and because we have certainty of what happened, we can have certainty of who you are and what you have planned for us. We thank you so much for Jesus and his work and what it means to our lives, and we pray in his name. Amen.